Good evening, and welcome to the Ecology Hour. I'm Anna Halligan. Tonight, I have a pre-recorded interview with postdoctoral scholar at Oregon State University, David Roon. Dave and I had an opportunity to sit down and discuss some research that he is involved in on the North Coast, and this research is focused on how fish and amphibian communities respond to riparian thinning activities, and they're looking at the results across entire watersheds. You may be wondering why this research would be relevant today, and I think in landscapes that have been highly altered, like many of the forests on the north coast of California, this research can be really helpful for forest managers and land managers as they decide what actions they need to take to create healthy and resilient forests. And it also could be really helpful to increase our understanding of the effects of wildfires on streams and aquatic ecosystems. Yeah, my name is Dave Roon. I'm uh, an aquatic ecologist, and I'm currently working for Oregon State University as uh, a postdoctoral researcher in the College of Forestry. And I'm really fascinated by like the connections between streams and forests and their surrounding watersheds and um, trying to understand those connections and linkages to help us better understand what happens to streams and aquatic ecosystems when forest and watershed conditions change. And so that's really been kind of the focus of my research and have been really fortunate to be able to explore this question uh, on a few different studies and projects uh, looking at the effects of invasive species and the effects of forest restoration and currently looking learning about uh, the effects of uh, wildfire. And so um, that's really the, the, the focus of my research and, you know, the questions that I'm interested in. Yeah, well, it's, it's a really interesting topic, particularly in areas along the North Coast where forests have been altered so much. So could you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about like, what, what, what's the kind of status of Northern California or even Pacific Northwest forests? And, and, and what are, what's the kind of, kind of stand composition that you're mm-hmm. looking at when you're focusing your research? Yeah, yeah. So in the Pacific Northwest and more specifically in the North Coast of California, uh, the forests in this region have been extensively altered from timber harvest, where uh, back in the day, historical logging practices removed broad swaths of forests like across multiple, you know, extensive watersheds across the area in the region. And that really transformed forest conditions where you had these old forests that had a lot of variability. Uh, you had large trees, but those forests are also, you know, characteristic of um, a lot of, you know, young um, trees and other species growing in the understory, a lot of diversity, a lot of variability, a lot of heterogeneity. And by extensively clear cutting those forests, you then uh, transform, you know, what has grown back where a lot of the forests that have been uh, replanted after those historical timber harvest practices uh, were a function that they were harvested at the same time. So a lot of the forests that have grown back 
you know, um, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years after, you know, those historical timber harvest practices tend to be really different where they tend to be, um, all of the same age. They tend to be, um, of a lot of, um, you're losing a lot of the diversity in what trees are growing back because they're either planted or they tend to be dominated by early successional species, uh, like red alder. And so, you know, you're shifting from these forests that, um, had this incredible amount of diversity and variability to things that are pretty homogenous. And so the forest conditions that you have on the landscape are just really different from what would have occurred um, otherwise and occurred naturally. Right. And on this show, I've talked a little bit about some of the work that I've been involved in and um, some of my colleagues in the restoration world have been involved in where we talk about that even age stand structure and how it affects certain like geomorphic processes and rivers and streams. So we've, mm-hmm. we've kind of lost the old trees that would be, you know, breaking off tops and dropping into the channel or falling in themselves and how that's like disrupted a cycle. And so what are some of the other effects of like that, that you have seen? Maybe we could launch into a little bit of your research about some of the studies that you've been doing looking at land management activities that might alter and diversify a riparian area um, to address some of the, these kind of um, changes that have happened from historic land management practices. So yeah, what's, some of the, yeah, what's some of the stuff that you're doing to kind of look into that and to provide advice to land managers about what to do? Yeah. I mean, well, since, you know, we had those historical timber harvest practices that used to clear cut forest extensively across the landscape, forest practices have really changed. So like since uh, there was a big shift in the 80s and 90s, once we started realizing that, you know, the extensive clear cutting was starting to have uh, negative effects on watersheds and aquatic ecosystems and the fish that they support, uh, you had a large shift in forest management practices that now require uh, riparian protections. And the addition of those riparian protections has been really important because basically beforehand you could clear cut up to this edge of a stream channel and, you know, plow over that stream channel. You could, you know, um, you know, there was not any uh, protection left for the stream. And so by protecting those riparian zones uh, and leaving riparian buffers, um, forest practices now have really different influences on um, aquatic ecosystems. And so there's been a series of more recent studies that have shown that, you know, by leaving those riparian protections, uh, you can really reduce the impacts of timber harvest practices. And so not only are there riparian buffers that are um, left to protect the stream channels, and those riparian zones, uh, there's also like, you know, smaller, you know, clear cut sizes and there's more of an emphasis, emphasis on selective logging or, you know, variable um, density management practices. And so there's been a whole shift in um, forest management practices. And there's been a lot of recent studies evaluating the effects of those practices and especially on characteristics that matter for fish and their habitat, like 
shade, which uh, influences like water temperature or reducing the amount of sediment entering a stream that can fill in the interstitial spaces that are important for spawning habitats. There's been um, a lot of progress that's been made uh, on um, how management management um, practices influence aquatic ecosystems and the habitat conditions that support fish species that we care about. But since then, you know, because so much of the forest that's grown back, especially in those riparian zones, are a function of those previous land use activities, there's been some interest in now that we have riparian forests protected in a lot more places on the landscape, can we start to think about what condition those riparian forests are in? And so that is the nature and of some of the questions that I've been involved with recently is with these riparian zones that we're protecting, which are really important, you know, what condition are they in? The fact that those forests tend to be, you know, really homogenous, even age stands, high density, you know, is that the best state for those forests to be in? And is it better to let those forests, you know, grow back on their own to eventually um, return to this uh, late seral old growth state? Or is there opportunity to potentially do some active restoration within a riparian zone? And it's interesting because when you talk to people who were involved with, you know, setting up the Northwest Forest Plan, you know, there's this whole concept of riparian reserves. And these riparian zones are really important to have on the landscape because they maintain uh, a lot of really important ecological functions that support um, habitat conditions for fish and other species that we care about. But then this concept of reserves has been interpreted as, you know, no touch that we like always leave these riparian zones alone. And, you know, riparian areas do naturally experience disturbance. You have um, you know, storm events that can cause individual trees to fall down and create gaps in the canopy. Uh, you have disease outbreaks that can also cause individual tree mortality. Uh, but, you know, the intention was to make sure we had these areas back on the landscape, but it wasn't necessarily meant that we would never um, look at them again. And so I think that there's been recently some a lot of interest in, you know, what can we do with these protected riparian areas? And is there opportunity to potentially incorporate um, some active management in those areas? And so, you know, this is something that a lot of managers from different backgrounds are interested in. This is something that like federal managers like the Forest Service or Bureau of Land Management have been interested in. Uh, this is something that you know, national parks um, have been expressing interested in and a lot of like restoration uh, groups. But because there's really strict uh, riparian um, protection and like uh, regulation rules, those areas have been kind of thought to be, um, you know, like a no touch area. And so it's pretty difficult to explore some of these questions. And that's where, you know, science can um, enter into the conversation because if we do some experiments at a much smaller scale, we can use that information to learn about whether some of, you know, these restoration, uh, activate restoration practices and ideas, you know, to better understand what the effects of 
those actions might be and evaluate um, whether or not this is something that would be feasible uh, to apply uh, across uh, larger areas and other locations. And so, you know, it was interesting because I think that in this region, there was a lot of interest in uh, forest restoration, applying, you know, civil cultural and forest restoration practices in these second growth riparian forests that tend to be really high density, even age stands, a lot of early seral species like red alder, uh, which is uh, a really common species in the Pacific Northwest and in Northern California. And, but there wasn't a lot of information about what those effects would be because, you know, we had restrictions uh, that limited um, evaluation uh, of those type of questions. And so I ended up being really lucky and being able to participate in this really unique watershed experiment where um, from, you know, moving off of, you know, forward from like a couple earlier experiments, you know, where people have evaluated the effects of clear-cut logging and saw some pretty dramatic impacts to aquatic ecosystems, then following up with riparian buffer uh, evaluations and finding that, you know, buffers can be pretty effective and uh, returning, you know, conditions like shade and water temperature back to a watershed. Um, but then, you know, you had group, there's a couple studies that have looked at much smaller scale, uh, effects of, um, changes in riparian canopy structure and the implications for, uh, watersheds and, uh, trying to then take the next step of like, okay, if we wanted to do like, you know, in places like Redwood National Park, you know, they have a pretty active program where they're trying to use silvicultural techniques like uh, thinning uh, second growth uh, forests to see, you know, uh, if you can accelerate the recovery of the trees that you're leaving on the landscape. Because basically, if you're selectively removing individual trees from a really dense stand, the trees that you're leaving uh, in a forest have more space uh, to grow faster. You know, you're competing with fewer other trees to uh, for water and light and nutrients from the soil. And so uh, the Redwood National Park has been uh, one of the um, first agencies that I was aware of in this region that was starting to experiment with these restoration thinning treatments and looking to see what that meant for forest stand dynamics and conditions and showing that, you know, it can accelerate the recovery of um, the trees that you're leaving on the landscape and they can grow faster. But then that was all in an upland forest context. And so the experiment that I was working on was then like trying to extend that same idea to a riparian zone. And can you thin within a riparian zone? And what are the implications of these more subtle changes in canopy conditions? And how does that affect uh, the aquatic ecosystem? Yeah, you know, it's it's it is really interesting. Like I I find myself asking questions, you know, where we're dealing with this altered environment, mm -hmm. and now we have a range of conditions that, as you mentioned, um, natural ecological processes will kind of sort out over time. Mm -hmm. As land managers and as restoration practitioners, we kind of don't have the luxury, particularly when you're dealing with endangered species like salmon, to wait 
And, and so, you know, there's always that question of like, well, how long would it take for our riparian systems to, um, incur enough natural disturbance that we get more heterog, you know, like more diverse stand composition and, and, and age class diversity and things like that. So I, I do, I really appreciate that research like this is happening because I do think think, and I have a bias because I work in restoration, but I do think that there are some land management activities that need to occur because we have altered this landscape and because there's a there's kind of a temporal setting that we're dealing with, with, with some endangered species where the populations may really suffer if we don't act. Mm-hmm. So... If you are doing studies where you're you're kind of focusing on like a riparian thinning, what are some of the different potential effects that you would expect to see and and what did you see in your research? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying makes a lot of sense um just to like go back to your earlier point where like, you know, from a restoration perspective, um certainly like ecosystems have the capacity to, you know, there's like successional processes, like after disturbance, like forests will grow back um, to later successional stand characteristics, but that process can take hundreds of years. And so then there's the question of, you know, whether or not there's an opportunity or a role of, you know, some active restoration to accelerate that process and using science to help inform that those decisions to see like, you know, let's actually learn like what the effects are and can we use that information to guide those management decisions and like, you know, those restoration activities, because, you know, one way to think about it is that like no action doesn't mean no effect, right? Like you can leave those stands, but like that might delay the recovery of characteristics that are important for species that we're trying to manage for, you know, whether it's like large wood inputs or salmon habitat or shade conditions to keep water temperatures cool, just leaving things as they are still, you know, that legacy effect is carrying over. And so like, you know, there's philosophically like, you know, it's a question that we wrestle with, but there's opportunity, you know, there's some reason to consider active restoration practices and evaluating those practices and using science to help guide those decisions of whether or not it's you know, reasonable or not. With the study that I was working on, you know, basically, you know, there's so many connections between riparian forests and aquatic ecosystems that are important. And so when you're opening up a canopy uh, through uh, a thin, you know, some of the immediate things that come to mind are you're reducing the amount of shade um, that the canopy is providing that can influence how much light and solar radiation reaches the stream channel and that potentially could affect water temperature. And so like that was one of the major things that we wanted to check out because that's uh, water temperature is a parameter that regulatory agencies are managing for. And there's thresholds that uh, agencies want to make sure that water temperatures are below to ensure that they're not approaching levels that are stressful to cold water adapted species like salmon and fish. And so the first step in our uh, experiment when we decided to move forward with this uh, watershed scale experiment on um, the potential impacts of of riparian thinning was uh, what does that mean for shade conditions? What does that mean for the amount of 
light that's reaching the stream channel and how is that influencing water temperature? And so we would, we had, we were really fortunate where we were able to work with one of the local timber companies, uh, Green Diamond Resource Company and Redwood National Park that were considering doing these riparian thinning treatments um, right next door to one another. When we started this project, we were, you know, starting to plan this out with Green Diamond because this is a question that they were interested in is can they thin within their buffers, which are wider than what the state of California requires because they have an uh, aquatic habitat conservation plan that they've negotiated uh, with the state and with the regulatory agencies. And so they actually protect 150 feet of forest on either side of their fish bearing streams. Um, and so we initially were working with them to see, can you do these thinning treatments and what does that mean for conditions that influence fish uh, on their ownership? But then at the same time, we found out that Redwood National Park was starting to explore, you know, whether riparian thinning treatments were gonna be something that they could apply on their ownership because they've already been doing a lot of upland thinning and wanted to like extend their thinning treatments into the riparian zone. And so we were able to tie the two projects together to bring in uh, a broader group of managers to look at these treatments and uh, set up uh, a manipulative experiment where we actually went out to these watersheds, figured out where these thinning treatments were gonna take place. We collected data for a year and a half before the thinning treatments were implemented. We then uh, went back uh, for another year and a half after those thinning treatments um, were enacted and then monitored the responses afterwards. And so for this question, uh, the most immediate question regarding shade and light and water temperature, we were able to take um, measurements of um, canopy cover and shade uh, reaching the stream channel through uh, hemispherical photography, where we basically had like a digital camera with a fisheye lens that we set up on a tripod and would aim it up at the sky. And if you take a picture with that camera, with that special lens, you can put it into a computer program and it will split the light and dark pixels within the photo. And it gives you uh, a more uh, unbiased uh, estimate of how much shade is covering that location. Uh, you have to wake up really early. It's kind of crazy. You have to be there before like the sun um, interferes with your photo. And so we would hike out to these watersheds like, uh, before the sun would come up and like take a bunch of pictures to characterize shade conditions in each of these uh, reference and uh, treatment areas that we were um, trying to measure conditions before. And then the next year they would cut the trees and we would go back and take the photos in the same locations to see how the shade levels would vary. We also put out sensors that measure how much like solar radiation reaches the stream channel. So we would put these sensors um, above the stream channel out in the middle of the summer to measure how much light would uh, filter through the canopy down at the stream. And you can use that uh, as a, a check or just to, um, to validate, you know, the shade measurements you're getting to see if they're similar in magnitude. And then uh, to measure water temperature, we deployed all these digital uh, temperature sensors uh, and we would put them not only uh, above and below where the thinning treatments were taking place, but we actually distributed them through the watershed because the thing is about um, a change in the canopy uh, and its effects on water temperature, you know, that reduction in shade 
increases the amount of light in that location where you're opening up the canopy. But because water is flowing through the the watershed and it's moving downstream through that patch of thinning, the changes in temperature that might uh, emerge from uh, the increases in light can carry over downstream. And so one really important aspect of our project is we wanted to know how our temperature is changing locally, but then if we documented a change in temperature, what was the spillover effect? How far downstream did that change in temperature travel so you could actually capture the entire footprint of that temperature change um, associated with the thinning treatment? It's so cool how much technology has changed and how that affects the quality of data that we get. Because I'm just sitting here thinking about all the times that I have stood in the middle of a creek channel with a reflective densiometer and collected canopy that way. Um, It's really common. That's like the most common method. But then using this camera like uh, limits how much your like impression of like the number of cells in a densiometer that are covered by vegetation like it removes it some of that bias and so it provides maybe um a more accurate estimate of shade conditions in that location Mm -hmm. so so when you saw so with the thinning activities i mean i i would assume you saw some increases in stream temperature Mm -hmm. and when you and so then when as you were kind of tracking those differences in temperature through the watershed. I mean, did you see, this is probably difficult to, to really follow, but how far downstream did you see the effects of the thinning and, 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 and do you, how did you factor in for other types of um, watershed processes that like actually cool water, for example, if stream flow goes subsurface and it's Mm -hmm. traveling through subterranean stream gravels, it can often cool. So how did you factor in the other watershed processes as you're trying to understand changes in t- temperature across the entire watershed? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, essentially like this is the power of like having like an experiment like this, that if you were only to like look at things after the fact, you know, you wouldn't be able to like tease apart like with the temperature values or that you're seeing, like how much of that is actually due to like the changes in canopy versus how much like groundwater might be coming in and like mediating the temperature um, conditions. Cause there's, it's not just uh, sunlight or solar radiation that influences water temperatures. You know, there's groundwater pathways, there's uh, the amount of the volume of water like influences like temperature conditions where you are in the watershed. There's uh, so many factors, but because we were able to go out there and get a baseline uh, value of what the water temperature was through the watershed, that baseline map of water temperature conditions, like we saw inherent, you know, uh, variability in temperatures due to like, you know, if you had, you know, a tributary coming in, or if you had like um, a area of like groundwater upwelling, like we would see that uh, emerge from the baseline temperature data that we were collecting through the water shed. But then after the harvest takes place, you can then use the data that you collected before the harvest as your template and your baseline. And so then you are then, you know, comparing the temperature data after the thinning treatments took place to the temperature data you collected before the treatments. And you can then calculate the differences between years. 
And so that pre-treatment data then becomes so valuable because not only do you know what the water temperatures conditions are in places where they didn't thin, but you could also know what the temperature conditions were like uh, in those treatment sections beforehand. And so you can then account for the differences that way. So the, the experiment and the way that we designed it, which is called a before-after control impact experiment, allows you to account for the fact that there's going to be natural variation that occurs like through a watershed inherently and um, attribute the changes um, more directly to the treatments that you're evaluating instead. And so because of that, we were able to uh, more directly account for the changes in temperature actually due to the thinning. And it, it depended, you know, in the park, you know, they didn't thin as much as they did on the Green Diamond watersheds. And so we saw very small changes in temperature. So they thinned maybe, you know, 5% of the canopy. And we saw really minor changes to temperature, like maybe of like, you know, less than half a degree Celsius, you know, and sometimes we couldn't even see a change at all. But then uh, in the other watersheds we were working in, where the thinning treatments were more intensive, like on the order of a 25% reduction in canopy cover, you know, we were seeing um, an increase of anywhere between like one and two to three to four degrees Celsius. So larger than we were expecting. And where we saw the larger increases in temperature, you have more thermal energy that would be more likely to travel downstream. And so then again, with, you know, that, um, having the experiment set up in the way that we did, we could actually then track to see how far downstream those changes in temperature would travel. And the places where we saw the larger increases, we saw that when you left the thinning area and you returned to a forest canopy, it took more distance for that increase in temperature to return to its initial state. And where we saw a smaller increase in temperature due to the thinning, you know, that downstream effect didn't travel this far. And so sometimes, you know, in the park where we saw such minor increases in temperature, we didn't see a downstream effect at all. But where we saw the larger increases in temperature of, you know, three to four degrees Celsius, sometimes it would take 600 meters, 800 meters, uh, or close to a kilometer for that temperature increase to return to its initial state. And so, you know, the spatial extent of that effect was definitely uh, further than we expected. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Ecology Hour, and this is KZYX. I'm Anna Halligan, and tonight I have a pre-recorded show where I interviewed Oregon State University postdoctoral scholar Dave Rune about his research on riparian thinning and aquatic ecosystems. Did you also look at the kind of what the ecological response to these stream temperature increases were? Like, how did that affect the macroinvertebrate community and and then the fish community? Because one thing that we've been talking about a lot um, around here, just when I say we, it's like foresters and restoration practitioners and stuff, is that sometimes we're a little bit worried that um, there's not enough disturbance to kind of create mm. some warmer patches of water that make more productive food webs. And so I'm wondering, mm -hmm. were there any positive benefits associated with increased stream temperatures or yeah. negative, I guess? Right. I mean, it's interesting because temperature isn't inherently a negative thing. 
you know, it depends on your background temperatures. If temperatures are really cool, which is often is like on the north coast of California, especially in that fog belt, you know, summer temperatures don't tend to get up above like 15 degrees Celsius. And so it, like those watersheds are really cool. And so you might, if you were to um, go through with a, you know, thinning treatment, like we were evaluating, you know, maybe you see an increase of a couple degrees, but because your starting temperature is relatively low, that won't necessarily exceed the threshold of a species like uh, coho salmon or something like that. But if you're further inland and you're starting, you know, your summer temperatures get up to 20, 25, 30 degrees regularly, even a small amount of temperature um, increase can really, you know, then exceed the threshold of you know, the species that occur there. And so your context really matters. And so and specifically in like this North coast region or, you know, where water temperatures are cool, you have, you know, extensive fog that keep, you know, air temperatures cool as well. You know, small changes in temperature may not be problematic, but it depends on the extent of increase and what you're starting with. And so, you know, in addition to the temperature changes that we were tracking, we wanted to know how these changes in canopy influenced the aquatic ecosystem because those increase, you know, the riparian forest contributes a lot of resources for the stream. So you have leaf litter that falls in that support aquatic macroinvertebrates that rely on leaves as their primary uh, resource. But then you also have other aquatic insects that rely on algae that grows on the stream bed. And those types of aquatic insects, um, you know, if you increase the amount of light, that can influence how much primary production or how much algae grows on the stream bed. And so it, for the insects that rely on algae, an increase in light might be beneficial. And so the other thing that we were looking at was how these changes in the canopy associated with the thinning uh, would affect the food webs in the watershed that support, you know, the top predators. And where we were working, these were smaller headwater streams. We didn't get, we were above the anadromous fish barrier. And so we were above where there would be juvenile salmon or steelhead. And we were primarily working with resident populations of coastal cutthroat trout, as well as coastal giant salamander. And actually like the amphibian biomass in these watersheds exceeded the fish biomass. They're just so prolific and you wouldn't notice them because if you weren't actually surveying because they're so cryptic, you know, they're hiding between the rocks and the stream bed. Occasionally you'll see one like go up onto the riverbank. But, you know, when you're out there, we were using a backpack electrofisher to uh, capture them, uh, which uses just like a mild um, uh, electrical current that will just temporarily stun them you start to realize how abundant they are. And so we wanted to know, you know, because you have resources from the forest that fall in and you also have algae that grows on the stream bed and both of those pathways are important to be supporting the top predators. We wanted to know if the food web supporting the top predators in these streams were shifting at all. And what was really interesting is that even though we saw these increases in light, it did result into some increases in the algae, but we didn't see that they were enough to like meaningfully shift the macroinvertebrate communities. And so we didn't see major differences in the community composition of the invertebrates, 
Uh, and then when we actually uh, sampled the top predators, so the cutthroat trout and the salamanders, we would um, non-lethally sample their diets. So we would capture them and anesthetize them and flush their stomachs. And you can, because they don't chew their food, you can see what they're eating. And if you know uh, uh, how to identify these different invertebrates, you can get a sense of what resources from the environment they rely on. Uh, we didn't see that the composition of the prey items in the diets supporting the top predators changed either. And so because the thinning treatments are relatively subtle change in canopy conditions, we saw that you know the uh, response by the aquatic ecosystem stayed more or less at the lower trophic levels. It didn't directly you know cause these cascading shifts that were reaching the top predators. But as you were mentioning, you know these predators uh, are very sensitive to changes in temperature. So we didn't see changes in their food changing a whole lot, but they were still responding to these changes in temperature. And so there are models that bring all of these pieces together. Basically, uh, if you know how much a predator, like a trout, grew over time, and you know the water temperature conditions and how much food it's been consuming, you can make predictions about how much energy it would have needed to expend to, make, to deal with those temperature changes. And so even though we didn't see the types of prey changing and the diets of these predators from those models, we're learning that essentially to in order to deal with these changes in temperature, um, these fish would have to be eating more frequently. And so um, these fish are still responding to these changes in temperature and in the way to, that they're dealing with it is probably eating more frequently, but because their whole metabolism is sensitive to water temperature, it isn't necessarily, um, and those changes in water temperature are relatively small, uh, it, we didn't find evidence that it was negatively affecting them. That essentially like the magnitude of the changes in canopy, changes in water temperature were small enough and that it wasn't approaching levels that were really stressful that these fish were able to uh, tolerate those changes in temperature. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, taking these holistic approaches where you're looking both at the physical conditions and the biological responses and trying to put them together in models like a bioenergetics model can be really informative to help you understand how these fish are actually responding to these changes in their, their environment. Mm -hmm. And you you did a little bit of similar research, but it was focused on the response after a wildfire with temperature and cutthroat trout. And I'm curious, did you find the same thing there too? Were the fish impacted by the changes in temperature after uh, a wildfire? Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, right now, you know, the, the work that I was describing uh, focused on the effects of riparian thinning was my graduate work. Uh, down in northern Humboldt County. Uh, and now uh, at Oregon State University, the current work that I'm focused on is trying to understand the implications of wildfire uh, on aquatic ecosystems and on fish. And so there's a watershed in southern Oregon uh, called Hinkle Creek, where they did a long-term study evaluating the effects of forest management practices and you know modern forest practices that include buffers. And they collected a 10-year data set. It was really long-term. The thing is, with the thinning project, we only had time to look at the effects one year after thinning. So we can't really say what the longer-term implications are for fish. Um, but 
this study in Southern Oregon had a 10-year data set looking at the effects of forestry um, on aquatic ecosystems and fish. And then the whole thing burned during the 2020 fires that hit Western Oregon. And it was hit by the Archie Creek fire, which was one of the higher severity fires um, of that set that hit um, the summer, that fall of 2020. And so there's this really unique pre-fire data set that rarely happens that we could take advantage of. You know, essentially like fires are random. You can't predict where they're going to happen on the landscape. And so one of the reasons that we don't always have a great understanding of what fire does to fish habitat and to fish is that we don't have good pre-fire data. But this was such a rare uh, situation where there was this 10-year data set that was collected, the whole thing burned. And so it was a this incredible opportunity to go back and start to monitor some of the same variables to see, all right, what's actually changing after the fire. And what we were starting to see that first summer after the fire was that water temperatures went up really high, higher than I expected. Uh, had seen in other systems I've worked in, like certainly higher than the north coast of California, where, you know, temperatures got up, you know, before the thinning temperatures were like on the, you know, would peak around 16 and would get up to like 18, 19 degrees. In this watershed in Southern Oregon, we were seeing water temperatures in the realm of like 25, 26, 27 degrees at their peak. Yet the fish were able to hold on through the summer and you know, we don't, we're starting to collect more data. So basically we had really limited data on their numbers, which doesn't tell you the, the full picture. You know, numbers alone don't tell you like how the fish are doing or how they're coping with changes in their environment. But based off of like numbers alone, we didn't see this dramatic drop in survival over the summer. So this, you know, initial hint of post-fire persistence in spite of those increases in temperature raises a lot of questions. And so I want to try to apply some of the same approaches that we applied in Northern California to this watershed in Southern Oregon, where, you know, starting to track, you know, how the fish are actually doing, you know, measuring their growth rates, which is like an indicator of like stress or well-being. Um, and, you know, we started collecting diets to see um, what kind of prey resources they're relying on. And put that into a similar bioenergetics modeling structure to then tell us, help us understand, you know, based off of these changes in the environment, how are these fish coping? And, you know, from the growth rates, you can see like how much is that going up or going down and how does that compare to the conditions before the fire hit? And I think that that's going to be really informative um, to help us better understand what fire can do because similar to a thin, Fire is doing multiple things at the same time. You have these like massive reductions in canopy cover um, that can either increase stream temperature or increase primary production in the watershed. Uh, but you can also see, you know, uh, debris flows that can negatively affect fish. Uh, there's so many factors that happen all at once. And so there, it's a really great opportunity to explore those questions and the fact that they measured a lot of these variables before uh, the fire will help us actually more directly attribute those changes to the fire itself. So yes. this is like ongoing research that I think that there's going to be a lot of opportunity to learn more about the potential implications of fire because uh, fire isn't necessarily uh, a uniformly negative process. 
you know, fish experienced fire um, for a long time, you know, in their historic ranges. And we've had a lot less fire on the landscape, you know, since we've been um, enacting, you know, fire prevention um, policies. But, you know, with changes in climate, fires happening more frequently. And so we need to understand what the implications are. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the responses to fire really depend on where you are in the landscape and what your kind of ecological context is, because there's going to be some places on the landscape where fish might be uh, sensitive to fire and other places um, where they may not. And it's important to understand why that is and where on the landscape are they more likely to be sensitive than others. Right. I'll be really interested to see some of the results from some of this future research because it is really it, it, it. The other thing that's kind of interesting about you know wildfire response is how long those impacts last. Like I know mm-hmm. in a lot of research where they've kind of looked at clear cutting, and so you could kind you can kind of extrapolate a similar response with wildfire. But where stream flow will initially um, increase in the summer, summer base flows will increase after a fire. Mm-hmm. Um, but that only lasts for a period of time before it returns back to the similar base flow that it had before the disturbance occurred. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, the temperature, the way that fish respond to temperature is really interesting to me. And I work in a few streams in like Sonoma County and Marin County where they, they do typically in the summer, see those higher stream temperatures that are in that kind of 20 degrees Celsius threshold. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the literature would suggest that fish, you know, really, should have like they should their survival rates should be pretty heavily impacted by temperatures but we are seeing fish persist but i often wonder too like at what risk to their health though like are, mm-hmm. are they getting bigger does it affect their ability to evade predators you know like right. what impacts is that having on yeah. fish um because a juvenile small can you know leave its natal summer rearing pool but if it's not big enough and strong enough it's not going to make it you know (laughs) out of the system or it won't persist for very long so yeah a lot of that species specific so you have like adult life stages of spawning salmon that might be more sensitive to temperature certain temperatures than other species and life stages so you have like species specific temperature thresholds and sensitivities Uh, it also just depends on the other resources in the stream so like you know, how a fish responds to temperature depends on how many, like the availability of resources uh, to support their metabolism because fish are cold blooded as water temperature increases, like their demand for food also increases. So if there's enough resources in the system, a change in temperature may not be stressful. uh, But if there's not enough resources in the system, uh, then, you know, um, then it could be uh, have negative effects. So it it depends on the interaction of temperature and food together. And if there's other stressors in the system, like if they're really high water temperatures, there's concern about diseases spreading. And so there's a lot of factors that we need to think about. Uh, it's not um, the same everywhere. So it depends on the species, the context, and what resources are available. Yeah. And so it's always... Uh, more complicated than um, people like to think, but it's really understanding the interactions of those factors can really be informative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good point that 
as temperatures increase, metabolism increases and therefore food demand. But if if it can balance out, <laughs> it could be a really good thing for growth and then therefore right. for overall survival. Yeah, very super interesting. Well, so I, I might transition a little bit because we're kind of coming to the end of the hour. And um, sure. I know you've done a lot of research about another kind of disturbance, which is the introduction of invasive species into a riparian community. And um, specifically, it seems like you, a lot of your research was focused in Alaska and looking at European bird cherry. Is that what it's called? Yep. Yeah. 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 So, ornamental tree that people have planted in their yards. There's like very few flowering plants that grow that far north. And so uh, people find them really um, appealing. They call them mayday trees because they'll flower in May. Uh, They have these like really bright white showy flowers, but then they've started to escape from people's yards and it started to like grow like within like the riparian zones of the urban streams, like next to communities. What has the impact of this kind of expansion of these, you know, ornamental plants into a and into a natural riparian ecosystem been? How has that affected other uh, parts of the riparian ecosystem? Yeah. Uh, so, in there's been a lot of attention paid to the effects of invasive species on native populations and in. From like a salmon perspective or trout perspective, there's a lot of research focused on invasive fish species. So where you have like um, non-native salmonids introduced from other parts of their range, uh, they can compete with native fish. But then there's been a lot less attention paid to uh, invasive plants that can spread in riparian forests and the implications for aquatic ecosystems. Uh, but because of those connections that link riparian forests and streams, you know, there are a series of potential uh, linkages that can, you know, potentially connect that invasive plant spreading on a stream bank to a fish. And so you know, this was my master's research while I was living in Alaska and evaluating how these invasive species can affect uh, the food webs supporting juvenile salmon. So there's a lot of it's so funny, but I was working in Anchorage, which is the largest city in Alaska that has, uh, depending on which streamer, and you can see all five species of salmon living in these streams that, that flow right through the city. And there's like, you know, populations of grizzly bear that live like on the edge of the city. It's just such a funny uh, place to be working because you have just the du- juxtaposition of working in a city, but then also uh, intact salmon runs and bear populations. Uh, which made field research up there pretty exciting. Oh, um, yeah, I bet. <laughs> but yeah, so we were looking to see if the food web supporting juvenile coho salmon in those watersheds changed with the um, spread of that invasive species. And one thing that I wasn't expecting is that, you know, there were kind of two pathways that we were following. One, if um, the shift in the species composition towards these cherry trees would affect um, the inputs of leaves from the forest to support aquatic insect communities and we didn't really see a change there but then uh, one process that i think it's kind of underappreciated is that uh, the trees next to streams provide a lot of terrestrial insects that can fall into uh, a stream channel that during certain times of year like those terrestrial insects can be incredibly important food sources for fish like in those streams in california i would see that the coastal cutthroat trout like 
50 to 75% of their diet were terrestrial insects during the summertime. And similarly up in Alaska during the summer, uh, we would see a large contribution or a large portion of the diets being made up by these terrestrial insects that fall into the streams. And we saw that the cherry tree reduced the availability and inputs of those prey items. It wasn't quite to the point where, you know, that these watersheds weren't like a complete cherry monoculture. Uh, there was still like alder and birch trees and other vegetation types that were in the mix. So we didn't see that the spread at that point or the invasion at that point was to the point, uh, extent that it negatively affected prey consumption by the juvenile salmon. But you could see how uh, if the cherry tree were to spread, continue spreading and take over, that there could be um, negative effects over time. And so that was something that was um, informative to me. And uh, the city ended up, the city of Anchorage, uh, like the potential impacts of salmon, also the fact that uh, that cherry trees have um, cyanide compounds uh, in their bark uh, that would, um, if the overwintering moose would eat too much of the stems in the wintertime, which was like a period of low food, uh, it could kill the moose. Like the two pieces combined were enough in for, um, provided like the evidence that the city needed to uh, start eradicating the trees in those watersheds. So it was um, cool to, you know, work on a research project that contributed to like a management decision like that. Yeah, that is really neat. Um, super interesting work. So it, that, that, that does make sense to me a little bit. As you, at first I was really kind of surprised when you were saying how, much fish food comes from terrestrial um, insects falling into the stream in the summer. And then I started thinking about it. And I was like, oh, no, like, that is when we see them feeding in the surface a lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. It's one of the ways I try and coax fish out of their pools is by throwing right. little pieces of leaf litter in. Just totally. They're in there. Yeah. Um, oh, they're totally keyed into it. It yeah. depends on the time of year and it depends on where you are in the watershed. If you're in these, like, small streams, yeah. you know, the, where you have a lot of canopy cover, uh, those terrestrial prey resources can be really important. And it, the timing tends to coincide with summer, both because it's like the warmest time of year. So that's like when terrestrial insects tend to be most active uh, and more, most likely to fall in the stream. But then also you have a lot of the aquatic invertebrate communities, like their drift declines with lower flow and the life histories of those species, they tend to emerge earlier in the summer. So then those benthic populations or the availability of insects to float through the drift or through through the water column uh, is also a lot lower. So then there's just right. fewer aquatic insects uh, happening at that time. Yeah, that makes sense. I just want to thank you for taking time to chat with me and curious if, um, you know, if people want to learn more about what you're doing, is there, or do you have any resources that I could share? Or I know you're presenting at the, Salmonid Restoration Federation Conference in April this year. Yeah, we'll be hosting a session there. on riparian restoration. So if people are interested and are going to be attending that conference, that's going to be a really great venue to learn more about those topics. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot of good like local presenters talking about different aspects of stream and riparian restoration and the importance of connecting the two. You know, essentially, you know, there's stream and riparian uh forests are incredibly connected and it's important 
to understand those connections if you're going to be trying to manage one or the other. But Great. yeah, there's a lot of good information uh, out there. And, you know, increasingly the science is becoming like open access so people can access those resources. Because sometimes I think that like part of the limitation in, uh, for natural resource management and restoration is that the science isn't uh, accessible to people. So always trying to make my science and, you know, a lot of the new science like accessible to the people that need it on the ground, I think is really important. Yeah, that that is appreciated and and true. <laughs> and that is the end of my interview with Dave Rune from Oregon State University. Thanks again to Dave for sitting with me and recording the interview. And thanks to all of you for tuning in and listening. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting Listener Supported Community Radio, streaming live at kzyx.org. And we are also found on Facebook. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org. And consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.